0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the 2018-19 Dudleyan uh, Lecture. I'm David Hempton, and as Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, it's my pleasure and privilege to welcome you this evening and to introduce briefly the uh, Dudleyan Lecture Series to you. First, my thanks go to our Office for Academic Affairs for organizing uh, tonight's lecture, especially uh, Margie Jenkins, the coordinator uh, for the Academic Affairs Office, um, and other uh, um, helpers in that office, um, but also to my colleague, Kevin Madigan, uh the Wynn Professor of Ecclesiastical History on our faculty, who conceived and organized the lecture tonight. Um, and we're uh, also grateful to the Center for European Studies at Harvard for co-spon- uh, co-sponsoring this evening's event. Uh, so please allow me to say just a few words about the oldest and most distinguished endowed lecture at Harvard, the, D- the Dudleyan Lecture. Um, and thereby honor the donor who had this genius idea uh, 268 years ago, um, living memory of some of us. Um, so this lecture was endowed by Paul Dudley in 1750 with a sum of 133 pounds. Um, so compound interest is a wonderful thing. So, um, uh, Uh, Paul Dudley was born in 1675 and after graduating from Harvard College in 1690, he studied law at the temple in London. He returned to Boston and became attorney general and eventually chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court and he died in 1751. The first lecture in this series was presented by Edward Holyoke, um, an early American clergyman and the ninth president of Harvard. And um, it was delivered in 1755 and and it was entitled Proof of Natural Religion. Recent speakers in this lecture series include Sister Mary Hughes, uh, former president of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, um, Suzanne Harjo, a Native American rights activist, uh, Kathleen Cummings of Notre Dame, who is still remembered for her lecture on the 50th anniversary of Vatican II, and Dr. Paul Lim uh, from Vanderbilt University last year, who spoke um, in commemoration of the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So we have another anniversary and a very disturbing one to remember this year. Um, November 9th, tomorrow, has been named by historians and journalists as a fateful day for German history because so many important historical events happened on this date. Just to mention a few, uh, the November Revolution and creation of the democratic uh, uh, Weimar Republic in 1918, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. However, we are also mindful tonight of the Night of Broken Glass, or Kristallnacht, as it is in in German, that took place in uh, 1938. So we are remembering the 80th anniversary of this start of the Jewish pogroms by the storm troops of the Nazis. On this infamous day in 1938, 267 synagogues were destroyed and 91 Jewish citizens were killed in Germany and Austria. More than 30,000 Jewish men were arrested the following day and sent to concentration camps. Hearing those numbers and the even greater atrocities that followed is hard to talk about, but much harder to ignore or forget. Our speaker tonight is uh, Professor Peter Hayes from Northwestern University, who is a very distinguished historian of these grim events. Dr Hayes has devoted his scholarly work and research to help us understand and remember what happened during the time of the Holocaust in the not so distant past, and to ward off any new beginnings as they are looming all around us, as recent events have tragically shown. His latest book entitled Why? Explaining the Holocaust should be a must read in every high school and college curriculum across the country His book ends with the proverb quote beware the beginnings The author tells us about mr. Krupp an important industrialist and influential leader in Germany in the early 1930s Krupp was forced by Hitler's troops which occupied his offices to dismiss all his Jewish employees and any affiliates of other parties Krupp capitulated in the face of the threat of violence and political pressure. Another board member of the industrialist group at the time wrote to Krupp, stating, and I quote, that his actions amounted to capitulation, uh, capitulation to bullying, and that they deprived the organization of, of all basis for future non compliance with Nazi demands. And this person goes on to write if the German industrialists would not stand up for the legal rights of their own personnel, For whom would they stand up and on what grounds? And Dr Hayes concludes his book by stating that this correspondent was correct. The more powerful the Nazis became, the more irreversibly right he was. So beware the uh, beware the beginnings. So thank you, Dr Hayes, for being with us tonight. We're much looking forward to your talk. Before that, my colleague and friend, Professor Kevin Mannigan will introduce our speaker. Kevin's latest book project, uh, as with my old and dear friend, Ian Kershaw, a distinguished medievalist, who is also the biographer of uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, represents a shift away from medieval Christianity, which was the subject of Kevin's widely acclaimed book, published in uh, 2015, to a new career um, writing about European fascism in the 1930s. And he's now working on a book about the Roman Catholic Church and religious minorities and Mussolini's Italy. I want to note for our students attending tonight's lecture that Professors Hay and Madigan also have made time for a separate meeting with students tomorrow morning at 9 AM over breakfast to talk in more detail about Professor Hay's uh, work and the questions that will arise from uh, this evening's presentation. So if you're a student, uh, please join um, our two distinguished professors tomorrow morning for a deeper conversation and presumably some free food. Um, It's now my uh, great pleasure to invite um, Professor Kevin Manigan to the podium to introduce tonight's speaker. Thank you, Kevin.
1: Good evening. I'd like to begin uh, by thanking Dean Hempton Because as uh, as you might have guessed, uh, Peter's not going to be addressing the topic of natural religion tonight. He's not even going to be talking about unnatural uh, religion. That's my job. So um, many thanks to David for so generously interpreting the terms of the Dudleyan Endowment. So it is truly an honor and a genuine pleasure uh, to be able to introduce today's speaker and to welcome him back to Boston. Not only is he a son of Alston, uh, but he's an honored friend uh, to many in the room and a teacher to us all. A specialist in the histories of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, and in particular, in the conduct of the nation's largest corporations during the Third Reich, Peter Hayes is Professor Emeritus of History in German and Northwestern University. For his 36th year there, 36 years there, Professor Hayes was a very popular and award-winning teacher, and in his last 16 years, Peter was, in addition, the Weiss Holocaust Educational Foundation professor at Northwestern. Though Peter took emeritus status in 2016, he's not shown any signs of slowing down, not in the least. Rather, he's been speaking around the globe and has published two books in the past two years, including the book Uh, Dean Hempton uh, mentioned, which many of us have read since it's released last year, and some of us will be making uh, the bibliographical pillar of our survey courses. A specialist, as I say, in big business during the Holocaust, Peter's now working on a co-authored book, which will be entitled Prophets and Persecution, German Big Business in the Third Reich, which will come out in English and German, and he has other large projects underway as well. I could say much more about his 15 or so books, but let me just hint uh, at the worldwide impact they've had by observing that they've been translated into Chinese, French, German, Italian, Japanese, Polish, and Spanish. On top of all this literary activity, Peter has long supported the work of the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous, notably in preparing another book entitled How Was It Possible, a Holocaust Reader? And he's also uh, served uh, with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum where he currently chairs the academic committee. As Dean Hampton has noted, tomorrow will mark the 80th year since the German Kristallnacht program. For that reason, I'm particularly grateful that Peter has agreed to give this year's Dudleyan lecture entitled Kristallnacht 1938 Crescendo and Overture. Please join me in welcoming Peter Hayes to Harvard.
2: Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for the invitation, uh, and thank you for coming. As you will hear in my voice, I think, as time passes, though I have spent 40 years in the Babylonian captivity of Chicago, I am originally a Bostonian. And uh, I did spend the first six years of my life um, in Alston Brighton, and then um, middle school and high school in Framingham, so I don't get back here enough. It's a pleasure to be here. I looked up the history of this lecture and the rubrics that it was originally designed to support, and I was a little surprised as to how you found me. Um, I do not usually deal in natural or revealed religion. The third rubric was the Romish religion. I was raised in it, so that's something. Uh, And then the fourth rubric was Presbyterian Ministry and Theology. (laughs) And there you were brilliant. (laughs) Because my grandmother, my maternal grandmother's father, was a minister of the Kirk, who was ordained in Stirling in Scotland and came out to New Brunswick. And then my grandmother moved down to Boston in the 1920s. So at least biographically, I fit. Most students of the Holocaust regard the pogrom unleashed in Germany on the night of November 9th and 10th of 1938 as a watershed moment. It's not that this was the first time, or even the first time in 1938, that Nazis had killed German Jews or driven them to suicide, burned their synagogues, and marched thousands of Jewish men off to concentration camps. Austrian Jews already had experienced all of this in March 1938 during the Anschluss. The Reich had rounded up 5,000 German Jews and put them behind barbed wire during the summer of that year. And the synagogues of Munich and Nuremberg were set ablaze then too. What appeared different about the so-called Kristallnacht to people at the time was the scale and intensity of the destruction and violence. All these things happened all across the country to many more people at many more sites and with much greater ferocity than previously. And what has stood out to historians since is something that the regime labored to conceal at the time, the organized, state-directed nature of the onslaught. In place of the arbitrary, episodic, uneven, and often locally instigated persecution and chicanery that beset German Jews during the preceding five years. I think I've set something off. Um, In place of the arbitrary, episodic, uneven, and often locally instigated persecution and chicanery that beset German Jews during the preceding five years and nine months of Nazi rule. A new phase of official and systematic degradation, humiliation and dispossession seemed to have arrived. This understanding of what happened that November is simultaneously accurate and misleading, accurate about the scale and barbarity of the onslaught of, os- of the assault, misleading about the degree and forms of change in Nazi policy toward Jews that night. As to the scale, every dimension of the onslaught, the looting and destruction of residences, shops, and synagogues, the number of people made homeless, terrified, injured, and murdered, and the spectacle of somewhere between 26,000 and 30,000 Jewish men humiliatingly marched through the streets of the major cities on their way to deportation to camps, vastly surpassed even the vicious rampage in Vienna several months earlier, let alone the occasional assaults on Jews carried out by stormtroopers on Berlin's Kurfürstendamm in earlier years. Small wonder that within months, the number of applications for exit visas on file at foreign embassies and consulates in Berlin overtook the number of Jews left in the Reich. One way of gauging the profound emotional impact of what happened that night is to read the more than 250 eyewitness accounts that three Harvard faculty members solicited in 1939-40 via a competition for, quote, the best unpublished personal life histories of persons who have experienced the effects of national socialism in Germany, unquote. You can find the originals, most of them in German, in the Houghton Library. Also, there is a manuscript, including 34 translated excerpts describing the horrors of Kristallnacht that a sociology professor here named Edward Hartshorn intended to publish under the title, Nazi Madness, November 1938. The book never appeared, however, because Hartshorn entered U.S. government service a few months before Pearl Harbor and never returned to academia. He was killed in Marburg, Germany in 1946 under mysterious circumstances. Two-thirds of the excerpts Hartzorn chose finally got into print in 2011, albeit only in German, in a moving volume entitled Nie mehr zurück in dieses Land, a fragment of the sentence written by Dr. Hertha Natthoff recalling her resolve, never again to return to this country if we can just escape alive." Unquote. Yet despite the terrifying shock of the November pogrom, it did not denote a change in Nazism's objective regarding Jews. The regime's leaders defined this repeatedly and identically, both before Hitler came to power and in the first years thereafter. Jews had to be removed in German, Entfant, from the German sphere. They were stigmatized as Germany's incorrigible, eternal enemies, sworn subversives and fifth columnists, whose traitorous actions had brought about the nation's defeat in World War I, and would cause the same outcome in another conflict. The sole change over time was in the regime's choice of means to achieve their removal. These evolved from inducing emigration, to forcing expulsion, to carrying out extermination. Kristallnacht thus marked the crescendo in a passage from the first to the second phase that had begun a year earlier, and an overture to the third. To understand the transitional nature of what happened in Germany that night, we have to begin with a question that good historians raise with regard to any event. Why now, and not earlier or later? The answer lies in the shifting relationship between the Third Reich's expansionist foreign policy and its exclusionist racial one. From 1933 to 1937, the Nazi regime's pursuit of these goals ran along parallel, mutually reinforcing lines as the new rulers of Germany felt their way forward, testing what they could get away with in reasserting their nation's power abroad and persecuting Jews at home. After all, Hitler started from an outwardly weak position. When he came to power in January 1933, his nation had no armed forces to speak of and his party enjoyed majority support in neither the electorate nor the cabinet. In both foreign and racial policy, he therefore proceeded similarly at first, combining periodic but well-spaced attacks on the status quo with reassurances about the limited and justified nature of his intentions. He sought neither war nor murder, he told foreigners and Germans, only equality and self-determination for his country and reasonable reductions in Jews' supposedly excessive influence over the people they lived among. Thus, 15 months separated Hitler's withdrawal from the European Disarmament Conference and the League of Nations in 1933 from his renunciation of the military restrictions of the Versailles Treaty in 1935. And another 15 months separated that move from his reoccupation of the demilitarized Rhineland in 1936. In so-called racial policy, two years or more stood between the beginning of the expulsion of Jews from the German civil service and cultural life in 1933 and the laws of 1935 that excluded Jews from the German military, deprived them of German citizenship, and forbade sexual relations between Jews and non-Jews. And almost no conspicuous restrictions followed in 1936-37. All the while, outbreaks of overt violence against Jews were kept to a minimum and mostly out of sight or earshot of foreign reporters. Hitler supplemented this staccato stop and go pattern in the public pursuit of his goals in the mid-1930s with a second, more clandestine approach. To conceal the pace of German rearmament, his regime created a dummy bond-issuing corporation called MEFO that in effect doubled the military expenditures reported in the national budget. To inflict more harm on Jews than his sporadic national enactments could, he allowed local party bosses and stormtrooper units to harass and threaten individual Jews or their children, to ensure their social isolation, and to undermine their livelihoods. In short, the Third Reich pursued its intentions behind a smokescreen. In conjunction with wishful thinking on the part of some Germans and many British and French onlookers who dreaded the prospect of war, the result was widespread popular readiness to believe that Hitler's aspirations with regard to the international order and the presence of Jews in Germany could be kept within manageable bounds. This delusion underpinned not only the policy of appeasing Hitler's demands for territorial concessions, but also Britain's delay in rearming to face the danger of German aggression, as well as the general reluctance of foreign states either to protest against Nazis' violations of Jews' human rights or to provide refuge to the victims of these violations. By late 1937, the Nazi regime's duplicity had enabled noteworthy successes. The Reich had created at least the appearance of an intimidating war machine, begun a vast expansion of synthetic raw materials production to make Germany blockade proof, driven roughly one third of the German Jewish population out of the country, and stripped German Jewry of almost one half of its wealth. But Hitler concluded that he had merely set the stage achieving his goals. Actually doing so now meant that he had to engage in a race against time. For one thing, he understood that the military edge he had acquired over Britain and France through breakneck spending on armaments was artificial and likely to prove fleeting once those nations brought the superior resources of their empires to bear. At a conference in Berlin, On November 5, 1937, he therefore told his senior generals and ministers that Germany would have to fight its war for living space no later than 1943 to 45, after which the Reich's window of opportunity would close. And he prophesied that conflict might have to come even sooner if opportunities arose to annex Austria and Czechoslovakia, which he considered quite possible. He did not refer at that meeting to a second respect in which he felt a sense of urgency. But his subsequent actions attest to it. If war was imminent, and if, as Hitler's ideology dictated, that war could not be won so long as Jews lived within German lines, the pace at which Jews were leaving the Reich had to accelerate. At the current rates of mortality and immigration, no Jews would remain in Germany by the mid-1950s, but that was way beyond Hitler's time horizon for conflict. These were the considerations that led to the massive escalation of pressure on Jews in Germany from November 1937 to the crescendo of Kristallnacht in November 1938 the Nazi regime now subjected Jews to a veritable cascade of cruelty in order to persuade more of them to leave and to shock and awe other nations into opening their doors. Jewish businesses were defined as those in which one senior manager was a Jew or 25% or more of the stock was owned by Jews. Swiftly deprived of government contracts, raw materials, and foreign currency, with which to pay for necessary imports, such firms had little choice but to sell out at extortionist prices. Jewish communities lost their right to own property and had their synagogue and school sites confiscated. Jews had to complete an itemized census of their personal property to add identifiably Jewish middle names and to have their passports stamped with a red J. 30,000 Jews lost their jobs when the Reich forbade them to work as traveling salesmen. Thousands of Jewish doctors and lawyers saw their practices limited to serving other Jews. The national government authorized municipalities to ban Jews from public streets on certain days of the week. It expelled Jews who held Soviet citizenship from the country early in 1938 and many of those who held Polish passports in October thus setting off the chain of events that led to the Kristallnacht Pogrom. But until that outburst of atrocity, the increasing pressure on German Jews led to only a modest increase in the number who managed to get out of the country. The Avian Conference on Refugees in July 1938 revealed all but universal unwillingness on the part of the rest of the world to take in more Jews. Nations that had been receptive in the early 1930s, notably France, the Low Countries, and Czechoslovakia, had turned noticeably less so. In the United States, immigration quotas continued to go unfilled as the public and the relevant divisions of the State Department balked at the admission of more so-called Refuge Jews. While Britain continued to is- insist that it could serve only as a transit state Accepting only Jews destined for another ultimate destination, the Dominions, notably Canada, South Africa, and Australia, declined to accept more than a handful of such people. Herschel Grinspan's murder in Paris of the German diplomat Ernst von Rat, in order to draw attention to the plight of his parents, who were among the Polish Jews the Nazis had tried to push into Poland, thus gave Hitler a pretext to ratchet up the pressure. He welcomed it all the more because 1938 had presented him with the possibilities he had foreseen the previous years in the form of the Anschluss with Austria and the acquisition of the Czech borderlands at the Munich Conference. These victories now brought Hitler face to face with the inherent but previously masked contradiction between his desires for territorial expansion and racial purification. Obtaining the former worked against achieving the latter, since the newly acquired territories together contained 200,000 Jews, almost as many as had emigrated from the Third Reich since 1933. This circumstance gave added impetus not only to the regime's decision to unleash unleash the violence of early November 1938, but also to the emergence in Nazi leadership circles of a new way of talking and thinking about policy toward Jews. Given the prospect of not being able to get rid of Jews faster than the growing Reich added them, a prospect made vivid by the fact that the living space Hitler envisioned lay in Poland and parts of the Soviet Union inhabited by millions of Jews, officials began to give voice to the previously unthinkable. The first documented use of a new vocabulary concerning the Reich's future treatment of the Jews comes from a report of a Swiss diplomat in Paris of a conversation on November 14, 1938, Less than a week after Kristallnacht, in which the number two man in the German foreign ministry, Ernst von Weizsäcker, declared, quote, The remaining Jews in Germany should immediately be deported somewhere. If no country will take them in, they surely are going sooner or later toward their complete annihilation. In German, ihre völligen Vernichtung entgegen. Vernichtung." Ten days later, Das Schwarze Korps, the publication of the Nazi SS, which now also controlled the German police, editorialized as follows, The German people are not in the least inclined to tolerate in their country hundreds of thousands of impoverished Jews. In such a situation, we would be faced with the hard necessity of exterminating the Jewish underworld by fire and sword. The result would be the actual and final end of Jewry in Germany, its complete annihilation. Finally, in January 1939, Hitler made the new vocabulary his. On the 21st of the month, he told the Czech foreign minister that the Jews of Germany would be annihilated unless other nations admitted them. Nine days later, in a speech to the Reichstag, commemorating the sixth anniversary of his appointment as chancellor, Hitler predicted, quote, the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe, unquote, in the event of a new world war. As yet, all these remarks foretold annihilation, Vernichtung, only as something that would happen under certain conditions. But for the first time, the thought was out in the open. So much so, in fact, that the U.S. Consul General in Germany, Raymond Geist, prematurely but presciently told the State Department on December 6th, weeks before Hitler uttered even the threat, that, quote, the Germans have embarked on a program of annihilation of the Jews, unquote. Headlines in American newspapers used the same word. In the short run, Kristallnacht was a qualified success from the Nazi regime's point of view. Briefly, but perceptibly, the rampage pried open the doors of admission to the United Kingdom and to the United States, shocking public and official opinion enough to allow about 100,000 Jews to gain access to both places before the gates narrowed again during the following summer. But this was as nothing when set against the conquest of Poland shortly thereafter. In pursuit of a Jew-free Greater Germany, the Reich clearly was chasing its own tail. Officially, the near-term policy in 1940 remained inducing emigration. While the relocation of most German Jews to so-called Jew houses and the formation of ghettos in Poland accelerated the rate of attrition among them and prepared the way for the next phase of forcible expulsion to a succession of imagined destinations, at first Madagascar, later the outer reaches of a conquered Soviet Union, beyond the Urals and above the Arctic Circle. But as each of these so-called reservations proved impracticable, all of the conditions posited by Weizsäker, Dasvatsakor, and Hitler in 1938-39 came to pass. The numerous remaining Jews could not be deported. They had become impoverished, and war had occurred. And so during the latter half of 1941, the fulfillment of the prophecies of 1938 took place, but in two steps. First, the Nazi regime opted to bring death to the Jews in the path of its invasion of the Soviet Union and thus to avoid the problems of managing ghettos that had arisen in Poland. The murders would be carried out by special shooting units drawn from the SS and assorted police formations, concealed from the wider world under cover of war, and justified to German soldiers as preventing sabotage and forestalling partisans, in short, as acts of self-defense. Second, just as these killing operations in the East began to encompass women and children as well as men, Hermann Göring directed Reinhard Heydrich to find, quote, an overall solution to the Jewish question in the German sphere, unquote. He and his subordinates, Heydrich and his subordinates, quickly realized that they had the capacity to bring the Jews already in Germany's grasp to death by much less conspicuous and labor-intensive means than those practiced in the conquered parts of the Soviet Union, by deporting Europe's remaining Jews to remote sites, applying the gassing methods developed during the so-called euthanasia action of 1941 against handicapped people in Germany, exploiting the cheapness and lethality of a fumigant already in use at many camps and military sites, the infamous Zyklon, and burning the bodies, the SS could achieve its dream of a Jew-free Reich in relatively short order. Consequently, the effects of Zyklon were tested on Soviet prisoners of war at Auschwitz in September 1941. Construction of a gassing installation at Belzec began by November and a broken-down manor house began functioning as a killing installation at Helmno on December 8th. The stage was literally set for the carnage that followed between March 1942 and February 1943, when fully half the victims of the Holocaust perished in only 11 months. Kristallnacht not only gave some German policymakers a glimpse of the possible future but it also revealed the availability of a key means to the foretold end. For though the perpetrators of the pogrom in November 1938 consisted primarily of Nazi party stalwarts, mostly SA men, acting under orders, assaults on Jews and their possessions frequently were cheered on and intensified around the country by male teenagers imbued with the bloodlust in which the regime had schooled the German population during the preceding years. Their willingness to mock and attack their neighbors foreshadowed their readiness three to five years later, now in the uniforms of the police, the army, and the SS, to inflict torture and death upon Jews in the occupied East. Kristallnacht served, in other words, as a practice round in dehumanization and as a signal to Nazi leaders of how far they had come in creating a murderous society. All in all, then Kristallnacht gave voice to the thought of wholesale slaughter, though not yet the reality. And it rehearsed German youth in viciousness. In the history of the Holocaust, the pogrom thus heralded the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. Thank you all very much for your attention. So
1: So thank you so much, Peter. And uh, we'll now have a brief response uh, from one of our own, uh, Professor Mm -hmm. Al Sagan from the Center for European Studies, Alex. Thank
3: you, Kevin. Good afternoon. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Kevin. Before before responding to Professor Hayes' thoughtful and stimulating lecture, I would like to thank uh, Dean Hempton and Professor Madigan and their colleagues at the Divinity School uh, for giving us the opportunity to co-sponsor this afternoon's event. Uh, Kevin organized this event from start to finish and offered us the opportunity to co-sponsor without the heavy lifting and we appreciate it very much. 30 years ago, in 1988, as a doctoral student at Harvard, I co-organized an academic conference commemorating the 50th anniversary of the November program. I was struck then, as I am now, by the unique way that academic gatherings can serve the dual functions of education and commemoration. The following year, I was privileged to attend the first Lessons and Legacies Conference on the Holocaust convened by Professor Hayes and the Holocaust Education Foundation at Northwestern. This was the beginning of a series of conferences, edited volumes, and scholarly institutes in North America and Europe that did more than advance academic understanding of Nazi crimes and the genocide of the Jews in Europe. These efforts, in which Professor Hayes has played a leading role over many years, helped to bridge gaps that once fractured the field of Holocaust studies gaps between academics and survivors, between Germans and Jews, between those focused on the victims and those studying the perpetrators, and between historians, literary critics, religious scholars, and psychologists. This work in addition to his definitive research on German industry in the Third Reich, has helped make Peter a dean of the field. And it's an honor to have him here today and to have the opportunity to hear an overview of Kristallnacht that draws deeply on his vast knowledge of the scholarship on Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Professor Hayes characterizes the events of the November Pogromnacht as both crescendo and prelude And in referring to similar acts of public violence, humiliation, vandalism, and theft that occurred in the months before November 1938, he shows that Kristallnacht was indeed a crescendo, different in scope, but not different in kind, from a longer phase of anti-Jewish persecution within the German Reich. This raises several questions. My first has to do with the changing role of anti-Semitism in Germany during the Third Reich. As Professor Hayes notes in Why, his recently published and magisterial overview of the Holocaust, the problem with Daniel Goldhagen's argument regarding German anti-Semitism was the characterization of anti-Jewish prejudice as an unchanging force in German history. Though in fact, the inculcation and activation and empowerment of anti-Jewish views and policies underwent a transformation from 1933 to 1939. To put this in plainer terms, when it comes to the legitimation of racist views, leadership frankly matters. How should we view the change that occurred in the years and months leading up to November 1938? What did that mean for the Nazi elite and for the lower party members, or for young Germans who came of age under Hitler, to whom Peter referred at the end of his talk, or for the rest of the population, who may have viewed themselves as bystanders, but whom we might see as more or less complicit? Another question raised by Professor Hayes has to do with the changing nature of Nazi goals and actions. As he reminds us, Anti-Jewish policy was focused on social segregation, expropriation, and mass emigration through at least 1938. If we view Kristallnacht as an escalation of these policies, which it surely was, does this instrumentalist analysis lead us to understate the ritualistic, psychological, aesthetic, or even, dare I say, spiritual functions, served by the violence and the public spectacle. How might we understand the violence against the Jews as simultaneously instrumental and as an end in itself? Thinking about the different motivations for persecution of Jews raises for me the polycratic nature of the Nazi regime in which multiple entities competed for authority over the anti-Jewish agenda. Here I am thinking particularly of the SA, the SS, the Gestapo, the SD, and other entities. If Kristallnacht was a crescendo, was it the crescendo of the thuggish anti-Semitism of the brown shirts of the SA and local party bosses and Gauleiter? who perpetrated intimidation, violence, and vandalism against Jews from April 33 through 1938? And if Kristallnacht was a prelude, was this because it was the moment when the SS, now in control of the police, assumed increasing authority over anti-Jewish policy in a way that was more rigorous, more systematic, and increasingly genocidal? Or is this dichotomy too simple? One of the most instructive aspects of Professor Hayes' talk is the way he helps us understand how an anti-Jewish policy characterized by social ostracism, street violence, expropriation, and forced immigration increasingly came to be seen as insufficient, and how an even more radical policy of mass murder came into focus conceptually in late 1938 and 1939. In this sense, Kristallnacht was both the climax and the last gasp of one phase of anti-Jewish policy. And it also expressed a virulent and murderous rage that would soon be translated into a new and even more radical form of persecution and mass murder. Thereafter, hatred of Jews would increasingly be instantiated as fully genocidal. Finally, I'd like to ask, what did Kristallnacht mean for the Jews who experienced it? In Why, Professor Hayes says a great deal about the impossible situations in which victims found themselves the choiceless choices that they faced, without any possibility of decisively influencing their fate at the hands of others. Peter, today in your lecture, you mentioned a collection of victim testimonies in the Harvard archives. And I'd be grateful if you could say a bit more today than you have already about the experience of the Jews themselves in Germany at Kristallnacht. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Alex. We're going to invite Peter back up to the podium now to respond to Alex. And then at that point, we'll open it up to all of you for questions. Uh, Just a reminder that there will be a microphone circulating around. And if you would just wait for the microphone uh, to arrive uh, to you, uh, that'd be great, because we are uh, filming this, OK?
2: Peter. (laughs) Thank you, Alex, these are all very challenging and important issues. Let me, um, unlike Alice in Wonderland, let me start at the end and work back. Uh, This question of uh, the experience of the Jews who went through this, one of the things one has to bear in mind is what Nazi persecution did to the Jewish population in Germany after 1933. It literally was different by 1939 than it was by 1933. By 1939, in the aftermath of Kristallnacht, half the Jews remaining in Germany were over 50 years old. Um, 60% of them were women. Almost everybody who was uh, an adolescent in 1933, 85% of them got out. But very few people who were over the age of 50 got out. The population that was left that was being subjected to this was a population that was even less defense, uh, able to defend itself than was the case earlier. Um, many of the people, and by the time uh, the par- persecution intensi- intensified after, 19, uh, after Kristallnacht, most of the population was old, female, and infirm. And so this is the first thing to realize about the situation that is who these people were that they had been those who had skills that could get them a visa to another country had long since left. The committee was incre the the, the community was increasingly uh, grouped in these so-called chew houses where people lived three or four to a room, where they were restricted where they could go shopping. They were restricted what hours of the day they could go shopping. Usually after four o'clock in the afternoon, at which point all the shop uh, shelves would be empty and so forth. So this is, this is what was left, and it is important to realize that what the Nazi policy had done from thirty-three to thirty-nine, was to reduce this community to this situation. Um, that takes us to the first question. How'd they do that? Not to the community itself. How did they create these kinds of pressures on the community that produced that result? And I think the thing one has to remember is power magnifies the ideas of those who hold it. Once the Nazis came in, what, and, and this is why I've taken the somewhat controversial position that um, in the history of anti-Semitism in Germany, it is far more important what happened after 1933 than what happened before. Um, Anti-Semitism did not bring Adolf Hitler to power. It was not the principal motivation of why people voted for him. Uh, but once he acquired power, he was able to turn this society into a society that believed, or at least acted as if it believed, his crazy notions that these people were the source of all Germany's misfortunes, that they had systematically held the country back, and therefore, because they had victimized the Germans, the Germans were entitled to revenge. That's the simple syllogism that the Nazis sold. And they sold it by constantly in a kind of echo chamber in which there were no competing voices. There were foreign magazines were not available in Nazi Germany after 1933. There was no equivalent of CNN. You could barely get the BBC. Um, This was a single voice relentlessly telling Germans you've been robbed. We know who did it and we know how to fix it. And you are entitled to whatever ruthlessness you wish to exercise in doing that. Now this brings us to the excellent question about the emotional, psychological, visceral quality of the events and, on November 9th and 10th because if you read these accounts, you, you, you feel like Franklin Roosevelt who, was the, who said shortly after, he said it was, it was impossible for him to believe that this kind of behavior could occur in a civilized country because you, you read accounts of husbands and wives, the, their front doors being broken down They're being driven out of the house while their furniture is thrown out the windows, while everything is smashed with no purpose other than destruction. And this goes on over and over across the country. What is that all about? It's about this syllogism of victimization and revenge. It's about a sense that we have been humiliated in the past, and now we exalt ourselves by taking this revenge. It's, it's, it's something out of the Middle Ages in a kind of exorcism quality. And that is, is certainly very apparent um, in, the, in the individual accounts of what actually occurred on that night. So yes, um, there, is this, there is a danger that in talking about the way in which the levers of power are activated at the top, one loses sight of what these people who are acting out the situation that night think they're doing. And that is visceral and emotional and vengeful. Um, the, the other question about, you know, is this the transition point in Nazi persecution from thuggery to um, something more systematic? Yes and no. Uh, clearly, the policy becomes more systematic and becomes more single-focused. But the thuggery never stops. When you read the accounts of the emptying of ghettos in the East, you, again, feel like Franklin Roosevelt. You cannot believe that people in a civilized country do these things, and that is, so that continues. That never stops. That is part of it, and the the danger here, I think, is um, in looking back on this, is in seeing, it wasn't easy for the, the Nazis to turn this society into a murderous society, but with total control of power, it wasn't that difficult either. And thus you have a population willing to do things in 1940, 41, and virtually everybody who is asked to do these things is willing to do it. The number of people in German shooting units who say, I can't, I, my stomach won't take it, I'm too weak to do that, is maybe up 10% at the top. And no one has the courage to say, this is wrong. They will simply say, they will opt out by saying, I'm, I'm too weak. Almost everybody is willing to do this, and they're willing to do it out of a kind of sense of solidarity with each other and with the ideology that says these people are our mortal enemies. And because they're our mortal enemies, we're entitled to do anything to them. Take questions? Yeah, please. Thank you. I'm I, deaf in
4: one ear. Okay, so I'm know. sorry. Uh, uh, thank you. Very fine. I, I'm thinking as you're talking about Victor Klemperer. You know Victor Klemperer, of course. Hi, his work helped me as a white Southerner in this country growing up in the 40s and 50s and seeing this white supremacy ebb and flow in a certain way but always be there. The way he talks about the underlying anti-Semitism and anti-Jewishness rang a lot, was very resonant with me, about the way white supremacy worked, at least in the white South of mm-hmm. my well, I don't know really how it works in the rest of the country. In the sense that it wasn't every day getting a lecture about those Jews killing Jesus, or those Jews who did these things. It was underlying in a lot of formal and informal ways in this sort of just who said it when, when it was polite or impolite, Mm -hmm. how deep it was. And what I loved, especially about the language of the Third Reich, but also around his, his memoirs, is how much he just documented that as a growing part of an acceptable discourse he was so much about discourse, but also about practice. Suddenly, it just wasn't odd to say and then do and then act on those things. And it seems to me that what you're saying is that. And what I don't understand, and I don't think Klemperer understand, and I hope you can help, is what are the what are the checks on it? I mean, does it have to run its course? Was there is there a way to just make it irrelevant? That's what I think I thought for a long period of time. But how do we check it? Because it's there. You know it's
5: there.
2: Yes, um, but there's almost no way to check it in the, in the circumstances of Nazi Germany. You've got to remember, right. this is a, a society that, this is a, a political party that comes to power in, in extremely violent circumstances. The first six months of 1933 are drenched in violence. And there are stormtroopers marching down every street. And if you are, uh, uh, Sebastian Hafner tells this story, I think, that if you are a civilian standing on the sidewalk and the swastika flag goes by and you don't elevate your arm, the brown shirts will beat you up. And the cops won't protect you. Um, this, every, everyone in Germany in the summer of 1933 who wanted to get a teaching certificate had to go to Nazi boot camp over the summer. Anyone who wanted to take the law boards, the German equivalent of law boards, had to go to Nazi boot camp over the summer where they were drilled in a sort of militarized sense of what it means to be a German. Now in those circumstances, there's very little way to stop this because this is the sole voice speaking to people. It controls not only the discourse, but also the levers of social advancement. And so people conform. Now in our society, it's a little different. What we have, is the legitimation of certain views that once were under rocks, they're there, but they're not, people don't vocalize them because that's, that's you know, we all know that's a little boorish and wrong. And so, and now we have uh, political figures who are basically saying, come out, it's okay, you can do this, it's, it's perfectly legitimate to say these things, under the guise of saying, we're against political correctness. Political correctness being common politeness in many mm-hmm. cases, right? And so, so that is the danger. And when you get a situation, for, we're sort of in the halfway part. We're in the liberation of these impulses, but they aren't totally in grip, in, backed by the power of the state and by violence. In Nazi Germany, they were. And so what you, what you, what you get is a steady increase in conformity. And again, it doesn't have to be mental conformity doesn't have to be mental conformity. It, it's simply a willingness to behave according to what the regime wants you to do. And then you can tell yourself, I'm a better person than that. I have reservations. But if you don't act on them, they are useless to the victims, these reservations. Uh, Want to go back here and work our way this way?
6: Um. Thank you it's it's pretty horrifying stuff and I find it somewhat difficult to talk about it but um appreciate your talk. Um I wonder first of all the the expansionist impulse is probably not the right word but this expansionism that you that you linked the sort of um you linked to the uh, change in the uh, uh uh the approach to the to the so-called Jewish problem. Um and then I was going to ask about this, but now I want to take it back a little earlier then. If it became impossible in 1933 as a result of the violence and the other things you've described, what, briefly, is your understanding of what led to that situation, the mistakes that were made politically, that the incapacity to organize effectively to resist the rise to power. I know it's a huge thing, but is there, sir, your, your brief understanding of how it was that the forces that might have resisted ended up not being able to more successfully?
2: This is an extremely complicated question. But um, if, if you look at the mathematics of the decline of the Weimar Republic, what is striking is if the communists and the socialists had been in a single political party voting together, they would have outpolled the Nazis. And so, what, but they didn't work together, and there was no conceivable coalition that could add up to more votes. And this tempted, uh, sufficient to create a, a, a majority in the parliament. And this tempted people to imagine that they could work with Hitler. And so you have the bourgeois political parties and some of the elites in the country saying, yes, we know he's vulgar, we know he's uneducated, we know he's impetuous, so on and so forth, but we'll control him. And so we'll put him in power, he will provide us with a mass basis, we can at least restore order in this country, and then we can ap- achieve whatever goals we have that overlap with his. Mostly those were not racial goals, but they were the revision of the Treaty of Versailles, the repression of the unions, so on and so forth. And so this, this delusion that one could use Hitler to their ends is ultimately what produces the government that, uh, that Hitler takes over. And then he gives them a six month lesson in how delusional they are. Start back there. Um, One of the major institutions you haven't mentioned is the church, and I wonder if. You're asking me about my Romish views. Um, the, the, the behavior of the churches um, was uh, disappointing uh, in the face of the crisis. Um, you had the Protestants I mean, basically split in many respects because the nationalism of Protestantism in Germany leads to an attempt to work with the Nazis. There's in fact a Reichbischof who's appointed, Mueller, um, And the willingness to stand up for the gospel is reduced by this patriotic fervor and nationalist impulse. With the Catholic Church, um, the problems are a little different. They have to do with um, a memory of having been marginalized as disloyal under imperial Germany and bending over backwards to prove that they are loyal. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this is a, my, this is a little excursion into my youthful days of catechism training. Um, the thing you have to remember about the Catholic Church is it is, at least in, in my opinion, it is highly blackmailable by political power. And the reason goes like this. In Catholic theology, there is no salvation without the sacraments. You cannot go to heaven without baptism and communion and confession and last rites. And I'm, you know, I, there are seven of them. I've forgotten some, right? Uh, but this is, you cannot do it. And this used to lead to the interesting question that I would raise in catechism class. What about Protestants? Can they go to heaven? And they would say, well, they sort of have sacraments. You know, it's not real communion when they hand you that piece of bread, but it, they sort of have sacraments. What about Jews? there would be an awkward silence on the part of the nun at that moment. So this, now this is the doctrine. You cannot go to heaven without the sacraments, and you cannot get the sacraments yourself. You can't just go to the supermarket and pick them up. In fact, you have to get them from the hand of a priest. That is the, what makes them efficacious. That means there's no salvation without priests. Now, any dictatorship that threatens to close the churches and take the priests away is a dictatorship that threatens to deprive the Catholic Church of its very reason for being, because its reason for being is to save souls, is to get you into the real life for which you are rehearsing right now. That is, I I know, I, I simplified it a little bit, right? But that's basically the theology of the Catholic Church. Now that means that the pope drew a distinction between the communists close the churches and turn them into stables, and the Nazis, who arrest some priests but not all of them, who say that certain teachings are unacceptable, but you can basically keep the churches open. This is, for a pope who is serious about the theological mission of the church, an absolutely fundamental distinction. Now, the Catholic uh, prelates in Germany divide very deeply over what to do. And there are individual Catholic bishops do say that the Pope should speak out more forcefully, that they should speak out more forcefully. They did not speak out after Kristallnacht. They did not denounce this as the atrocity that it was. They remained silent. There were cardinals of the Catholic Church in Germany who thought they should, but they were overruled by a majority of the cardinals, and that's the way the debate was played out. I always say, with regard to the Catholic Church, the behavior gets better the lower down the hierarchy you look. You know, there are, there are people who were quite heroic at the parish level. There were even the, the famous case of um, the, the provost of the St. Hedwig's in, in Berlin, the Catholic cathedral in Berlin. Lichtenberg, who uh, went to a concentration, who, who, who stood up on the pulpit and denounced Goebbels for having written a uh, pamphlet that uh, attacked the Jews. And he was arrested, and he ultimately died in a camp. There, there are these heroic examples, as there are in the Protestant church. But the majority of the behavior was adaptive, and in that sense, accepting.
5: Charlie. Peter, uh, Thanks. first a little, bit of, a little bit of a reminiscence. My late wife, Pauline, gave a Dudleyan lecture about 20 years ago, I guess. Uh, And uh, she was reminded then that one of the rubrics of this lecture was to expose the errors of the Catholic Church. Uh, And uh, she, being Catholic, uh, sort of uh, wended her way around this. Uh, She was a historian of the colonial American period. Uh, And, you know, I've. Uh, I, I'd, I'd like to ask a more scholarly question. I, have, I sort of always admire, because I, I always agree with what you say in various things. It's very equilibrated. It's very, it, it's, it's 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 not excessive. It's it's it think, it thinks through this, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that quality of your your scholarship. Uh, what I wonder is, we have studied this so long now. You've written a sort of summa. Holocaust or something in the last book. Uh, what do you think? What is left for scholars to do with the Holocaust and with especially the German uh, story uh, that's behind the Holocaust? Uh,
2: what is left for scholars to do? Um, you know, if I if I knew that, I'd be part of the next generation, which I can't be. You know, so the next generation will come up with things that I can't possibly imagine, because I'm steeped in the questions that my generation cared about. We certainly can answer that question geographically. We know that we know the parts of the Holocaust that we most need to learn new things about. And they are often, as in the case of Hungary, associated with highly inaccessible languages for people who were not born in them. Uh, Or in the case of Ukraine, where there's a lot of source material buried and lost and never cataloged, and people are going to be spending 30 years finding it. Um, but, but we know geographically that it's Eastern Europe. It's, it, it's the places where the Holocaust happened. This is the other thing that people um, tend to overlook, which is that th- three-quarters of the victims of the Holocaust came from only three countries, Poland, Lithuania, and the USSR. Ninety percent of the victims of the Holocaust died in those places, It's not France. It's not Amsterdam. It's not Anne Frank. It's this. And so there's going to be the need to balance that out, to find out more about that and so forth. There's always going to be a a central impenetrability about this, which keeps us coming back to it, which is how difficult it is to believe that this society turned into the place that did it. It's, you know, this this is what makes the Holocaust different from every other genocide I know. It's the kind of society that did it. It's not the Ottoman Empire, it's not Mao's China, it's not the Khmer Rouge, this is an educated, civilized, cultivated, all those things. And yet it descends into this. That's always going to be the question that we keep coming back to. And then there will be other questions that we keep coming back to. Who will defend whom? Timeless question, which the Holocaust throws up over and over again. And every generation will have a new answer to it based on new kinds of you know, the specialist sort of research that we do and the things we discover doing that. Um, so, and the, probably the punchline of this answer is uh, it's gonna sound odd. I'm optimistic about the subject of the Holocaust. I don't think it's going to go away. I don't think people are going to become indifferent to it over time, precisely because it raises these eternal challenges. Uh, Yes?
7: Thank you. First of all, I want to thank you. And uh, you did a wonderful presentation as far as history is concerned. But I have to let you know that I was there doing Kristallnacht in Germany, the city where I was born is now Poland, it's Breslau, and I experienced, since I attended a Jewish day school, that after 1935, students from public schools joined our school. It was that early that the uh, animosity was uh, against the Jewish people and the children had to come to our school. This is one of the things that I wanted to let you know. In addition, all the years that we were there, and my parents had come from Poland to Germany, and I was also part of those days when we were supposed to go to Poland, but it would take too long to tell you all that. And what I experienced was that children, uh, Jewish children, from the time that Hitler came to power, were beaten up by German kids. Um, I'm the third child and I had a young brother. I didn't look Jewish, so they didn't beat me up, but I had to protect my younger brother. Uh, I also want to mention that I experienced from my parents' business that it declined and that the uh, German population while they were perhaps not anti-Jewish, they were afraid to come to a Jewish store and buy there. Uh, In the beginning, not everybody joined the Nazi party, but as time went on, more and more did. And I think the promises that Hitler made to these Germans, that he would help them financially, is also very, very important, that turned them against the Jews, And uh, I also want to let you know that the Jewish community in every city, not only in mine, in Berlin, in Frankfurt, wherever, they banded together and they did an extremely important job (coughs) trying to help Jews either to leave Germany or to prepare us children to learn a trade that when the time comes that we could get out. In general, the idea was that males have to leave first. Uh, So you were right in saying there were many Jewish women and children left because if they could possibly send the husbands, fathers out of the country, they did that. Um, You didn't mention the communists enough because they were also persecuted. They were the, the uh, target of, of the Nazis. And um, I also want to share with you, I'm sure that you know about that newspaper, The Sturmer, which was a paper that was, it's only claim to existence was that they had caricatures and horrible um, stories against the Jews, the Knoblach Jude, and yet, as, as a child, I stood there because I was fascinated and I stood there and I read it and I said, that's not we, we are not the way it's written there. So if you, well, I don't want to speak more because I could go on forever and ever because it's part of my life, but I want to thank you and I'm glad my daughter-in-law, and Professor bowdy who invited me to come here. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
8: Thank you very much for that enlightening talk. Um, I don't think there's a single um, European or Eastern European or even Middle Eastern uh, to this day, including myself, who was not affected by what the Nazis did in 1938. My family was affected. But I don't want to go into a personal thing. Uh, My question is, I'm afraid, uh, as scholars, uh, maybe you're letting the, uh, the average German easily off the hook. The people who did this were not just thugs. I mean, uh, the people who did this were uh, at high level in terms of society. They own, you know, they had a lot of money. They had good positions. So to say that, you know, leadership matters. To say that it was because of Hitler that this happened. To say that uh, people were afraid because the uh, the SS or the Nazis were scaring them off. I b- I believe that's a little bit letting the Germans off the hook easily. So maybe in the future what really the scholarship has to be directed towards A, what has the church done about this? What have the industrial, the people had the money? Uh, how were they involved in this whole thing? And uh, basically just as German society, how was the society in general involved in this? Uh, the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung said, uh, the German uh, pagan god Wotan was, uh, uh, awakened, because what happened was beyond just beyond understanding. So we can't just say it was the thugs. We can't just say it was hit there. We can't just on, it say it depends a lot
2: on what we're talking about. If we're talking yeah. about the night itself, Kristallnacht, yes, we can say it was just the thugs. If you are talking about the transformation of German society in the 30s, there is a lot of scholarship on all the things you just listed. Now, where there is a very strong difference in the literature, and I and uh, is the old-fashioned view that somehow in the course of the 1930s the German national character reasserted itself, which is your uh, reference to Jung and and Wotan and so forth, the sort of Wagnerian view of German history. Um, I just don't agree with it. I just think that if you look at all the written sources, if you look at the material that we have, it is quite clear that uh, some Germans fit that model, but not all of them do. There was also 1918 in German history. All roads do not lead to the same place. It takes a lot of political power to form a society into the instrument of this will. It takes remember, a lot of money remember to do just, that. just a moment. Remember what, the, I, there, are, the, you know, there are moments w- where certain numbers are blindingly revealing. When Adolf Hitler came to power on January 30th, 1933, probably 55% of the Germans had never ever voted for him, 55%. Now to then say in the face of such a thing that blanketly these people were all in agreement and ready to do it from day one is just not a credible assertion. You have to look how a, a, a voting bloc that did not endorse him became a society in 1933. For instance, I, I'll give you an illustration from my work on corporations. I've written two books. You said industrialists. I've written two books about large-scale German corporations. IG Farben, a big chemicals company, Degussa, a smaller chemicals company. When Adolf Hitler came to power on January 30, 1933, not a single member of the board of directors of either of those companies was a National Socialist. The two companies, each of them had made one small monetary donation in the course of 1932 to the Nazis. Neither company had ever advertised in a Nazi newspaper, which is another way of subsidizing the Nazis. Flash forward to 1943. These companies are partners in the sale of Zyklon B. They are both employing tens of thousands of slave laborers. They are involved in every crime of the Nazi state. The important explanatory problem is how do you get from A to B? How do you get from a, to a situation in which none of them are for Hitler and greeting him with enthusiasm and ten years later they are all acting as if they had been. That's an important explanatory power. and The idea of German national character or the way they raise their children, which is also comes up in this context. Uh, that they were all just primed to do this from the get-go seems to me to fail completely in the face of that difference, 1933 and 1943. There's someone right behind you.
9: I, I was just um, wondering if you could characterize the, this progression from through these phases of emigration to um, to um, expulsion to extermination and uh, it, was that something that was like planned from the beginning, or was that something that the um, that the government got the emigration the thing wasn't going fast enough? I mean, it sounded to me at the at the start of your talk, you were saying that I, I believe that a third of the Jewish population had already left by, mm-hmm. so it sounds like it was actually having big time effects. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and granting with the territorial expansion, they were adding more Jews, so they were kind of like running mm-hmm. in place kind of thing from their point of view. But I'm just wondering. What was their idea about the emigration phase of this from the beginning? Did they think it would be sufficient? Or was it a highly, or or was it part of a plan that they had from the beginning to go through phase one, phase two, phase three?
2: No, it's it's quite striking how little they had thought this through. Uh, When you look at the party planning documents from 1928, 1929, 1930, 1931, they basically think that if they just make life difficult for Jews in Germany, that they will go away. Um, and they think of new ways to make life difficult. They lay out some of them, but principally what they're worried about in the the initial phase is they've convinced themselves of this fantasy, that Jews have too much influence over Germans. Jews make Germans do things that Germans wouldn't want to do if they were thinking straight. So you try to reduce that influence, and the first thing is you kick them out of the government positions, and you kick them out of cultural life. One of the first things they do in 1933 is they say, Jews can't be newspaper editors. Jews can't be theater directors. Jews can't even be orchestra conductors. All the ways in which they have an effect on Germans, that that will be cut down. That will be stopped. And then this isn't enough. And so they begin thinking of new things. And what happens is a kind of mission creep or a, you know, where... They're getting some of what they want, but it's not quite enough. And then of course there was that element of time that I introduced to you. Their sense of time speeds up. They have to get rid of the Jews before the war comes. And so they've gotten a third of them out by 1937. Now they think of the next thing, but then of course they're expanding to get ever more Jews. This is the faithful mathematics of Nazi expansionism, that they they believe the Jews are a mortal threat but they keep taking territory where there are more Jews. And then it, it's very, you ask yourself, why does this vocabulary suddenly crop up in 1938 and it had not existed before? Their messaging was very consistent. and entferno, and removal. And then all of a sudden people start talking differently. Uh, why does that happen? Because literally it dawns on them that they're facing this mathematical dilemma and they haven't thought it through. One more? Yeah, one more.
9: Thank you so much for this most enlightening talk. My question sort of follows on one of the earlier questions. Uh, Can you talk a bit about, uh, first of all, I don't disagree with you about the proximate cause and the role of, of, of leadership, but if you take a historical view, and you go to uh, see the, the Crusades, the, 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 the Inquisition, uh, the Dreyfus Affair, the programs. I'm now going to the late 1800s, early 1900s in Poland, in Russia. Is there not a common element there, and is it not the church?
2: Say that last sentence again, I'm sorry. Is there not a
9: common element there, and is it not the church?
2: Of course. Um, The beginning of my book, the first chapter of my book, is Why the Jews? And it is about antisemitism, which is fundamentally rooted in a religious conflict. So it's, there is, modern antisemitism may not take religious forms in many respects, but it starts with a religious rivalry. The Jews are the people who said no Christianity came into the world with a promise of the, the good news, the gospel, the new covenant, the whole bit, everything is revised and starting anew, and the Jews said, thank you very much, we have it. And that is, that's where it all starts. Now, however, it's not a linear story. There's the crusades, there's the inquisition, there's that, there's also emancipation, there's also um, the trend of the 19th century in which more opportunities are open to Jews and so forth, there's Amsterdam, there's the, ne- the Netherlands in, in the early modern period. It's not a consistent story in which always the persecutorial impulse has the upper hand because there are countervailing st- strains of Christianity and countervailing no- notions in Western history. So what we, we look at this and we try to figure out why do these eruptions occur? At, what are the conditions that are favorable to eruptions of this sort at one time or another? What are conditions that are dis- unfavorable to it? And we get this kind of two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back, n- historical narration. The real question um, is not, is hostility to Jews embedded in Western culture? You bet it is. And th- th- there's no argument there. Um, and it, it's rooted in religion, but then it keeps finding new guises to take and so forth. Um, But the question is, why is it sometimes not very powerful and why is it sometimes quite powerful and quite destructive? And we have to be able, as historians, we have to be able to explain that. Okay.
9: Peter